0: Hey guys, so yes, last week we established some core understanding of risk and today we're going to take those understanding to dive deeper and really make it practical into three risk factors that retail investors should actually care because in the grand scheme of things, there are many things that are uncertain but not all uncertainties matter and not all uncertainties matter equally. So if you have not checked out last week's episode, you should head over to get all these core understanding and today we're going to establish these three risk factors that retail investors should care and how do we respond to these These risk factors. There are actually a lot of things that people have already been doing. But do you even know that these things that you've been doing are actually responding to these risk factors? For that and more, welcome back to another episode on the financial coconut. Good morning everyone, I welcome you to another day with the financial coconut In our podcast, we're debunking financial myths, discovering best financial practices And discussing financial strategies that fits our unique life You get it, ultimately empowering us to create a life we love while managing our finances well And today we're going to spend some time to talk about the three risk factors that retail investors should care Truth is, there are all these risk factors, not all are the same Welcome home Okay, so by now you should have come core understanding of risk and also we probably have established this idea that for a lot of people when they look at risk, it is very emotional, very qualitative, not very quantitative, not very probabilistic. Which is why it's a lot of stories, a lot of emotions and many at times we kind of overprice certain things and under-evaluate others, right? While it is very hard to immediately look at something and strike this logical, statistical, probabilistic, angle of risk and attach some sort of numerical value to it um, with uh, some of these core... Because we're not robots, man, we're humans, right? We listen to stories, not look at stats, okay? For all of you uh, actual scientists, people that look at stats, it's okay. You're still cool, lah. Huh? But <laughs> the main idea is, with these core understanding, you can better elaborate and better evaluate what actually matters. Um, most of us will never be able to really go down the statistical path and calculate and balance all the factors together to come to this risk equilibrium. But With this understanding, you can establish some sort of basic, you know, reality check as to what kind of risk matters because not all risk matters. Like what we have established by now, definition of risk is risk is equals to effect of uncertainty on objectives. Essentially, there are two functional words here, right? Objectives and uncertainty. In other words, what kind of uncertainties matter within your objectives? So, when we attach a context to this, right, essentially, what are our objectives as retail investors? Generally, there are a few, okay? A will be consistent returns over an extended period of time. And you can be doing periodic drawdown here. Essentially, means you kind of retire and you're living off your investments. So, then consistent returns over a period of time is very important, which is why a lot of endowment plans out there or, you know, state funds or corporate funds or family funds and all those kind of very structured kind of organized Organizations, they all will have this periodic drawdown requirement because they invest to use, they invest to consume. And if you're a retiree, it tends to be the case Which is why your objective is consistent return over an extended period of time. Of course, there are many other people that also subscribe to the whole compounding kind of growth which is probably objective B, which is to compound growth over an extended period of time and you want it to be consistent. You're not so concerned about volatility in the short term because your time period is a lot longer but you also, you know, don't want your investment returns to be jumping around, right? But generally, your objectives are not as hardline as objective A, which is you need consistent return every year because you're consuming out of it of course there are uh, some people who subscribe to the value investing kind of acquiring assets at fair price kind of idea which is uh, objective c which is really just about collecting assets at a good price Um, generally these are the few objectives of course there are other people that are speculating trying to be opportunistic and what are your objectives essentially if your objectives are not clear everything is uncertain yeah So I know different people may have different objectives and you're probably more unique. The reality is um, these three objectives are what I've established over time, trying to understand what people are looking for, what kind of investment returns people are looking for, what are your objectives, right? So based on these three objectives, we're going to talk about the risk factors that really matter to you. Uh, Why is this important? Because like we've established, risk is the effect of uncertainty or objectives. If we don't know what are some of the major objectives, then we cannot really factor uncertainty. Okay, And if uh, too many objectives, then we talk until tomorrow. Eh? So, so just these three objectives, I'm going to first throw away some of these common risk factors that sometimes I hear people talk about. Um, relatively common. People talk about it. People are concerned about it. But I'm just going to throw them out first um, to tell you that I personally feel that these two risk factors are not very much of a concern to retail investors trying to achieve these three objectives. And number one is liquidity risk. Um, why I think it's not very important because for most retail investors, your fund size are very small. Relatively small, okay? Even if you're at a million dollars, you're considered small in the grand scheme of the financial world, right? Any random fund has close to a billion dollars. Any less than a billion, you may not want to invest in them and blah, blah, blah. That's a whole different story, whole different discussion. But the idea is, because your fund size are small, it's very easy for you to move money, okay? Just think about it as like moving apples, okay? Today, if you want to move 10 apples from one room to another room, you know, maybe you just run two rounds. If you don't have plastic bag right but if you try to you know shift 10 boxes of apples and a thousand boxes of apples you get the idea right it's very hard so even shifting money is a challenge shifting money in and out of an asset you know it's a real big headache for a lot of these guys without shifting prices think about it if suddenly you open you know and want to buy a lot of of particular stock or sell a lot of a particular fund you will shift prices and it is not what you want you just want to liquidate right so for a lot of the big guys liquidity is a problem and uh For you, because you're a small investor, as long as you don't go into the interesting corners of the financial world, stay with your index funds, your, you know, class A shares, your big companies and uh, what have you not, then generally you're fine, right? So liquidity is not really a problem because our fund size are small and our objectives are not crazy. Number two is counterparty risk, okay? Because retail investors are very protected in the financial world. If you didn't know, I'm just going to put it out here that the financial licenses for retail investors, right, is very, very, it's the highest echelon. What does that mean? Which means that any company that can run open ads, right? Essentially, like your YouTube ads, or they can run bus stop ads, or whatever kind of advertisement, right? They have been certified to be, quote-unquote, the safest in the financial market. Essentially, means the products that they're selling, right? Is not wild, and crazy, and innovative, and risk factor, you know, very, very high, and whatnot, right? Because they are for the retail investors. So if you want to take that kind of license to sell to retail investors in an open fashion where you can market it on YouTube and whatnot, these licenses require you to sell some of the most boring products, uh, which is, uh, quote-unquote, some of the safest, And that is why counterparty risk is not really a big problem for retail investors because you will not be touching all your interesting, you know, very bourgeois, (laughs) weird products that can maybe give you a lot of uh, much better returns like based on what the risk capital or what hedge funds do, um, but maybe a little bit crazy in terms of volatility or in terms of like um, the probability of losing all your capital or losing half your capital and whatnot, right? So if you are Using established parties like people with brokerage licenses, robo advisors, and uh, big fund houses, and work with the banks, even insurance companies, and, and whatnot, they all have the highest tier of license so that they can sell to you. Unless you go and buy from some weird weirdo that you know is on the MAS alert list or what sort of weird shit. Those guys have counterparty risks. So as long as you buy from the established guys, they will not have counterparty risk because they are held to the highest standards. So then what kind of risks matter and how do we manage these risks? The first risk that really matters to retail investors is foreign exchange rate risk essentially forex okay so when we invest locally that means we buy stock market here you know like like uh, what have you the big banks or like SIA or, or whatnot okay don't buy SIA <laughs> Not a stock recommendation, but yes, okay, if you buy local stocks, you buy local properties, or you start a business with your friends locally, or you know, this mama shop auntie downstairs, don't want to do it, then you buy over the business. You know, you're investing, right? And if you invest locally, you don't need to care about exchange rate because you're operating everything in Sing Dollar. Right, so with that in mind, this this thing does not matter. But today, right, these days, more and more people are looking at Hong Kong shares, U.S. shares, buying JB property, Thailand property, and whatnot. And when you invest abroad, what you have to do is you probably right um, under normal circumstances you will need to exchange your SGD for another currency. And if you actually move money through the traditional financial system, right, which is the SWIFT system, uh which most people will use, the TT, telegraphic transmission, if you've not heard this term, you have to use the traditional system. And to function in that traditional financial system, most people use US dollar. So if you think about it, you want to buy a Thai property, you have to buy in Thai baht. But to do that, you have to transfer Sing dollar to Thai baht, right? And to go through the international financial system, what happens? Sing dollar will have to first be transferred to US dollar, and then from US dollar, it will be transferred to Thai baht. Yes, that is the idea, which is why the exchange rate for the banks is always very shit, okay? But over time, you start to see a lot more solutions coming up, uh things like TransferWise, Revolut, and not sponsored, but they are using a different way to shift money. I will not talk about them today, but things may change. But till then, if you're using um, the global financial system to shift money internationally, whether is it just topping up into your brokerage, your overseas brokerage, I'm sure you guys have tried this. As long as you have a brokerage that is overseas, they will ask you to send to some Goldman Sachs account or some whatever account, and all those are done in USD, and you are subjected to exchange rates, right? So in that sense, as long as you invest abroad, you have exchange rates problems. And so why is that a risk? Okay? back to the definition of risk huh? effect of uncertainty on objectives. Okay. So what kind of uncertainty does it create? To give you the best example that happened recently, I know during March 2020, a lot of people shifted money into the US market, right? US stock exchange. Um, a lot of people were saving up and preparing, you know, for the next market crash, thinking that you are some amazing guy and whatnot. Okay, if you've invested, good for you. But uh just don't make it sound like you predicted this, you know, you've calculated this whole thing. But what happened was a lot of people shifted money at that point in time, which was March 2020, and what was the situation at that point in time, US dollar went up compared to SGD 15%. Okay, so that means usually it was trading at 1.33, 1 US dollar to 1.33 Sing dollar. At that point in time, March 2020, it was trading at 1 US dollar was 1.46 or about 1.5, no, close to 1.5 SGD. What does that mean? It means that there was a 15% spike in USD to SGD exchange rate, but people went in. So, when people went in, over time, somehow people made money, which is great, right? So, you made money, cool stuff, but if you factor the exchange rate risk, if you made 50% from then till now, you actually effectively only made 35% because the exchange rate now is back to one33 So, you have lost 15% because of exchange rates. You get the idea, right? So, exchange rates become a problem when you're investing abroad and increasingly a problem as more and more people are shifting money to capitalise on opportunities all around the world. And if you are investing in places like the US, Europe, you know, I know people buying UK property or like Australia, Japan, um, even China these days, their exchange rates are very stable or relatively stable. It's not that big of a problem. But if you invest in JB property, buy Thai, you know, Phuket Villa and, you know, buy the stock market in Vietnam and what not right you are in for right. They tend to be a little bit more volatile. That means because um, they're growing, so the government is doing a lot of policies, they may print more money, they may depreciate their currency to drive trade. All those things, very complicated, will not touch it. But the idea is if the economy is growing, there are a lot of uncertainties involved and it tends to reflect in the exchange rates. So exchange rates can move quite crazily. And even if you bought a property in, let's say, Vietnam, and yeah, you made 100% in 10 years just because there was a property boom, and a lot of population all going to, you know, Ho Chi Minh and working there. So there was huge demand and yeah, property prices went up. But if you factor your exchange rates, you may have lost some money along the way because of exchange rates fluctuation and tend to be that emerging markets, exchange rates are more volatile than established markets. But it is not always the truth. It just tends to be this case. So with that, you realise that exchange rate risk is quite a thing, right? It is not like some random thing that does not happen very often. It is always factored in, right? And if you see depreciation of US currency over time, you see volatility in just a Malaysian currency, sometimes 1.2 something, sometimes 3, you know, sometimes 3 point something, right? You, you see these factors. And people are buying JB property, people are buying US shares. So when you see this kind of very real volatility, just from you going to shopping in JB, right? Then you should recognise that volatility in the exchange rate market is a problem when it comes to your objectives of investing and you know making returns and all that, right? So how do we then respond to it? Last week, we've established that there are three ways to respond. Risk avoidance, risk transfer and risk reduction. This is what we're going to do with every single factor going forward. Of course, there's risk acceptance, you know, which means just accept and create contingency plan. Uh, that one, we, we will not talk about it. But just on this factor of foreign rate exchange risk, how do we do it, right? For risk avoidance, Of course, to avoid it, that means you just invest locally, right? You don't invest abroad. Why is that the case? Um, If your objectives are not huge, that means like you just want your 5%, you know, a year-on-year returns or you just want to compound an 8% year-on-year. That means your objectives for your investments, right? Consistent returns or compounded growth and whatnot is achievable locally, that means it's not crazy, right? 5%, 6%, 8% should be okay. Well, not that difficult to achieve locally. Not recommending you, but not difficult to achieve locally. Then yes, if you don't invest abroad, that means you can choose not to invest abroad, right? That means your tools can be local. And in that sense, you essentially avoid foreign exchange rate risk because you just invest local. The other way is a risk transfer, right? So the risk transfer, what most people do will be to hedge currency. Right, to hedge currency, this one, very complicated, right? Of course, you can directly buy insurance from uh, insurance companies or from the banks. Yes, if your pot is big enough, they do sell you this kind of exchange rate risk packing kind of thing, but this is um, a, bit, a bit hard. The other easy way that you can do will be to short the other currency. It's easy in the sense that you can easily do it, you have access to it, but it's not easy to do it. So, generally, um, I think you shouldn't do it, lah, right? So, that is risk transfer, right? And under risk reduction, there is this uh, strategy that a lot of people are propagating, and I think rightfully so because it's probably one of the easiest, and that is 50 50 which means you invest 50% of your money in local assets, in local companies, local properties and whatnot, and 50% of your assets abroad, overseas, right? So when you do that, actually you balance out the exchange rate risk, right? Because essentially exchange rate is uh, use one to change for the other, right? So if you own half-half of both sides, right, then you, you will balance it off. Of course, we are not going into the an integrity and the details. Um, it may not be 100% balancing because uh, probably you're not 50% in one currency only. You may have different, different Countries that you invest in, and they may move differently. But the idea here is as long as you hold 50% of your assets locally and 50% of your assets abroad, the impact of foreign exchange rate risk will be greatly reduced. Which brings me to point number two the other risk factor that matters for most retail investors, and that is concentration risk. In other words, everything put into one thing. Lah, okay? And we'll talk about this afterward from our sponsor. Okay, I want to establish this idea that if you want amazing, extraordinary yield, 20% a year, 50% a year, 100% a year, then you probably uh, have to be concentrated. Why? If you invest in 10 different assets and you want to make 20% a year, in other words, on average, every one of them must be making 20% or more. Selling a little or a lot? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Okay? But if you invest in 30 different assets, okay, it can be 30 different stocks or 30 different properties or you know, 30 different funds, or some funds, some stocks, some property, whatever, 30 different assets then in order to make 20%, every one of them will have to at least perform 20% or on average perform 20%. So what is the probability? It's going to be pretty hard if you think about it. Just based on the total number of people, it's like you want the whole class to get A like that compared to, oh, I only need 10 people in the class to get A. But the caveat here is if you're going to do this, that means you must have some sort of superior abilities to choose the 10 people in the class that will get A and invest in them. Right, So the caveat is superior abilities. But assuming that we don't have superior abilities, we're just average individuals trying to make our lives a bit better and manage our finances a little bit better, then what are the chances that we know how to flip property, we know how to pick super amazing stocks and outperform the market and all that? So if we can't do that, then concentration may become a little bit of a problem because if you think about it, if you have 50% of your capital in one asset or two assets, Then, when you look at your overall portfolio, right, the other assets don't really matter as much already because that one or two assets, right, is just going to overwhelm. Their performance is going to overwhelm your whole portfolio. And if you don't have superior abilities that you know how to do these things, then you may run the risk that this one or two assets, they underperform everything else and drag the whole portfolio down disproportionately because they are the biggest in this whole portfolio, right? Get the idea? So, concentration is a risk factor. But like we've pointed out previously, risk factors are not all bad, right? It has direction. So, if you know what you're doing and you want to be concentrated, it gives you a leverage to perform better if you if you can do that superior returns kind of idea right you know what you're doing and you believe that you can outperform hey concentration will help you but if you don't think you have superior abilities and you just want to perform you know with like consistent returns compounded growth and etc then broad based diversify is generally the idea right so which is why first idea the first concept of risk avoidance from a concentration risk standpoint is to diversify as long as you diversify you do it broad- Broadly, you don't concentrate yourself, right? So you buy everything, you buy the whole index, or you buy a lot of different assets. And with that, you don't all rely on one or two things. And that is why a lot of asset managers will keep telling you to diversify, diversify, diversify. And they have some sort of basis, okay? But You know, value investors will go against them and say that, oh, we don't want to diversify, we just want to pick companies and all that. And that is because their objectives are different. So if your objectives is to collect assets at a fair price, then maybe concentration is not that bad for you. But if your objectives are to get consistent returns over an extended period of time, then yes, broadly diversify may be the strategy for you to avoid this concentration risk. Uh Aha, get a better idea now? So then the other one is risk transfer. How do you risk transfer uh, concentration risk? What you can probably do is to engage professionals with a good track record, right? Assuming that they have superior abilities, that means they have shown a very good track record that they have superior abilities and you can get them and you can give them the money and they will be concentrated. They will be actively managing some of this money to perform the kind of returns that they establish, Right, which is why people pay a premium for active managers that are performing very well, but what are the chances? Okay, So this is the idea. You want to get your objectives of performing well, better than the market, but then you are afraid of concentration risk, you can probably use the risk transfer method, which is to get someone that has performed very well using concentration method. And then, yeah, in that way, you kind of transfer the risk over to the other party, right? They handle it. Ultimately, it's your portfolio, yes, but they are the one managing the risk. And if they don't manage well, you chop them, change manager. (laughs) The third one of risk reduction, once again, is back to diversify. As long as you diversify, broadly diversify, uh, you are essentially not concentrating. So ask yourself, what is your objectives? And is concentration risk a thing to you? And if it is, then diversify is something that people talk about a lot already. Which brings me to point number three, and that is price risk. There are a lot of names for this, but essentially, is are you paying a good price? So definitely depending on the price that you buy into, it will affect your objectives if you think about it, right? You want to get 10x a particular stock, you want to get an undervalued asset, it's all based on price. Or if you want to enter the market, as long as you're investing, there is a certain price that you are paying for already. And the reality is no one wants to overpay, right? Everybody wants to get undervalued, get cheap, you know, get upper hand and then whatever not, right? So nobody wants to, overpay, but as the market keeps growing, keeps growing, prices keep going higher, keep going higher, you know essentially there is a price risk essentially if you think about it, as long as you buy something, you transact on a certain price there is a price risk what does that mean? It means unavoidable whether or not you're trying to go for the broadly diversified buy index funds or whether or not you're trying to pick stocks and have some sort of evaluation um, in into this thing through DCA find the value price and whatnot. As long as you transact in the investments, there is a price risk. There is no way to avoid it. Of course, if you want to avoid it, that means don't invest, lah. Right? But if you don't invest, then you essentially go against your objectives. So given your objectives, this is a risk that you cannot avoid. Price risk, right? What is the good price? And are you overpaying for something? Or are you underestimating how low the price will move? Because sometimes when we buy something, we think, ah, market underpriced this thing. You know, think it's like, it's a it's debt. You know, we're going to like make good money out of this because the market has mispriced it. But then when you buy it, the prices keep going down, going down, going down, going down, going down, going down right? So this is something that you cannot avoid. But can you transfer the risk? chances are you cannot transfer, so there's no real way to transfer price risk. As long as you're invested, this thing exists. But then what is the way that people do to reduce this price risk? Essentially, DCA law. DCA is something people talk about a lot and in other words dollar cost averaging which means to keep buying at periodic times every month you keep buying sometimes you buy a little bit higher than your original price sometimes you buy a bit lower because the market is dynamic it keeps moving right but over time if you keep buying consistently 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 you get the average best price and if you DCA daily right then you know you, you get the idea right you, you essentially get the, the most average higher frequency better averages right that, that is the reality okay so how consistent can you DCA I'm not asking you to do it daily yeah, uh, but that is the idea if you have a lot a lot a lot a lot of data points that is your best average right so that is why people say DCA right DCA was soft price risk. Of course, if your objective is to collect assets at a fair price, then do your good valuation, do your DCF, you know, find and over time learn how to better evaluate assets so you don't overpay for it, right? So, different different objectives but these are generally the different ideas, the different risk factors that matters and why people always tell you to like diversify, you know, 50-50, DCA, you know, all these are just strategies to manage different kind of risk but people tend to oversimplify when they're explaining this. So if you have not listened to the first episode of like what are some core understandings of risk I don't know how you listen until now but go and listen to that that will help you and based on today's episode I'm going to sum up the three risk factors that matters to retail investors and how do we go about solving it right so number one is foreign exchange rate risk you cannot really avoid unless you don't want to invest abroad and if your objectives don't need you to invest abroad you don't you don't really have to right you can always go for the 50-50 idea to balance out your risk if 50 local 50% abroad number two is concentration risk and if you want to outperform the market, you want to be able to buy very good assets and do very, very well in your performance, then you tend to have to concentrate. But... Do you have the kind of abilities to outperform? That is the question. If you can't, then generally the idea is to diversify. Buy broad base, buy all kinds of different assets. So then you essentially get the whole market you will perform alongside the market. And market history has shown that it performed pretty well over even the past 100 years. And number three point is price risk. Everybody is very concerned, am I paying the right price? And the reality is, Unless you are very, very good at this thing, you don't really know whether you are paying the right price because market sentiments change. You can do valuation and whatnot. But what a lot of people will recommend you to do is to do DCA, dollar cost averaging. Because if you keep buying at consistent time, over time, you get the best price along the averages. And that's the idea of DCA. So many of these strategies require a lot more discussion and we can do these all as we go along. But up till now I hope you learned something useful today see ya learned something useful to today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with Financial Coconut knowledge that much more powerful and interesting when shared debated and discussed join our community telegram group follow us on our social sign up for weekly newsletter everything is in the description below and if you love us want to help us grow definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials also if you have any interesting thoughts to share and know someone that you want to hear more from reach out to us at hello at with that have a great day ahead stay tuned next week and always remember personal finance can be chill Clear. Sustainable for all. Woohoo! Okay, good stuff. I hope you guys learned some good juices these two episodes. Um, Have a good understanding of risk or at least have some core basic understanding of why do people do these things, right? Why people keep saying, keep saying, you need to do all these. And uh, some some of these risks really don't matter as much. But today... um, I've established these three risk factors. I thought long and hard, you know, what really matters to a retail investors, And I hope this helps you. Uh, the different strategies that people recommend you to do and why, why, right? So, I um, hope you learned something cool today. For next week, we are going to... Uh, wait, wait. Uh, for later this week. Later this week, we're getting Gus on. So, Gus, um, Gustavo is actually a very seasoned banker turned entrepreneur. Quite cheesy story these days but I think he went to a lot, a lot, a lot and uh, he runs one of the biggest um, incubator accelerator here called Reskill Lab which is pretty cool and I got him on to really talk about how individuals can look at becoming an entrepreneur, leveraging on your experience in a corporate space um, or... Should I put it like at least uh, if you even if you don't want to be an entrepreneur, how do you become more entrepreneurial? Like, right? because that is the, the thing that a lot of people are talking about. And so I hope that he can give us some good juices later this week. Yeah, definitely got good stuff. Like, because I interviewed him on Ma, right. <laughs> but next week we're gonna talk about some business advice for side hustlers, you know, for indie hackers or like early SMEs because I do think that in the future, a lot of us will have to do some sort of side hustles or even feel like you want to explore some sort of side hustles or even become your own mini entrepreneur where you have to sell your services as more and more work become more contractual, more remote, more geek-centric. I do think that business advice matters. So next week, I'm going to share with you some stuff as we round up the future of work, Yeah. Any other good questions, uh, do let us know. We have a lot of content coming up for you. Uh, We have launched a new podcast called Our Entrepreneurship Show, so you can go check that out. Uh, Everything, right? Just search The Financial Coconut on the search bar wherever you are enjoying your podcast. You should see all the content that is coming up from us and we're building a lot of business-centric content. So if you want to do something or your company wants to do some business-centric content, um, definitely email to us, hello at thefinancialcoconut.com. So yeah, take care. Meanwhile, see you around, guys. Bye.